don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. What's new in the world of science? Well, the thing that's really clinched it for me this week, I think story of the week, has to be this wonderful paper in the Journal of Zoology by two researchers from the Open University. The Open University, of course, based in Milton Keynes in our region, the eastern region, and Rachel Grant and Tim Halliday have published this wonderful paper showing that toads might be able to forecast an imminent earthquake. Amazing as it sounds, these two researchers were in central Italy, by chance, it was this time last year, and they were actually interested in monitoring how toads mate, because when toads mate, they try and time their mating around the full moon. So they all congregate around the water's edge in spring, and they then get together, and when the full moon comes out, that's when they all mate properly, and then they hang around for a while afterwards until the spawning is complete by about mid-April, May, and then they disperse. But what was amazing is that on the 31st of March last year, these 90 or so toads that Rachel Grant had been watching suddenly and abruptly vanished, lost from sight. No one knew where they'd gone. And they stayed vanished for a number of days. In fact, by the 6th of April, when all of a sudden a very large magnitude 6.3 on the Richter scale earthquake hit the area, there were absolutely none of these toads in sight. Wow. And they stayed away until actually the 9th of April, when the last aftershock had passed. So this is a one-off observation, so we have to interpret it with a lot of caution, but at the same time, pretty amazing to think that these animals in some way presaged the arrival of this earthquake. Now, researchers don't exactly know how they're doing this, but this story does resonate with other reports, going back historically, of animals reacting to future earthquakes. Now, there are reports from China from the 1970s of a whole range of different animals, including fish and reptiles, snakes and things, behaving strangely up to two months before a very major earthquake. And there are also reports from various other continents going back to the 1920s of this happening too. But this is the first time researchers have actually been in residence monitoring this effect and seeing this very abrupt disappearance of a bunch of toads and then their reappearance once all the earthquake action was over. The researchers suggest that there's a number of possibilities here. One is that the ground disturbance could in some way have been releasing gases like radon, which bubble up through the Earth when the Earth starts to move a little bit in anticipation of an earthquake, and perhaps the toads were sensitive to that. Another possibility is that there might be some magnetic disturbance. We know that toads are very sensitive to the Earth's magnetic field because they use it to navigate by. They have a sort of biological compass in their heads. And another possibility is that the forthcoming earthquake in some way distorts the Earth's ionosphere. And this is the blanket of charged particles that surrounds the Earth and is what causes the northern and southern lights, actually. But maybe these toads are sensitive to changes in that because there were detectable changes in the ionosphere from up to five days before the earthquake occurred. So researchers say the jury's out, but at the moment toads could become the earthquake equivalent of the caged canary down the coal mine. So if you're going to an earthquake-prone area, it might be worth taking a toad, and if he hops it, you know you should too. Gosh, that's amazing. We'll be toad-watching now. It's a fascinating subject, isn't it, science? Freddie is here, and from uh, toads... I think we're going to cats, aren't we, Freddie? Good evening. We are, yes. This is the story I found out when I was a teenager. 
put down as fantasy and then found out later on it was actually true. During the last war, the Second World War, the cats in Northampton, in the suburb of Northampton, were noticed to be leaving the houses at night and congregating in a local park en masse. This happened over three nights. On about the fourth night, the Luftwaffe launched one of its biggest raids on Northampton. And a lot of the houses where the cats had been, would have been living with their owners were actually demolished and flattened by the bombs. After the raid, the cats started going back to where the houses had been. Wow. Could it be animals have a, some kind of a sixth sense that we don't know about yet? Um, the slight snag is that animals have very similar physiology. The way their body works is very similar to our own. So what should happen in animals ought to be able to happen in us to an extent. Now, there can't be anything that supernatural about how these animals are working because no. they're so similar to us. So there must be some logical explanation for why this was happening. Maybe the animals were getting frightened because for many, many years or many, many months there had been raids, there had been noises, there had been bangs going off, and perhaps they actually found that being out in the open with other animals of their own type was a safe environment for them because we know that things like dogs and cats they do seek solace in each other's company they hang around in groups and if they're feeling stressed and their owners are busy hiding themselves and they don't really care about the cat the cats are going to go where they feel safe and if out in the open where they can keep an eye on the surroundings see if they can perceive any threats and they've got the fellow cats with them to keep them company that that's probably going to appeal to them isn't it freddie thank you ever so much right let's go to another email now this is from uh, gert um, um, and uh, if you're a dog owner, then you'll be with this entirely. What triggers a dog to drop its winter coat? Because they all seem to sort of do it at different times, don't they? That's right. And, in fact, we answered a question on The Naked Scientist a little while back, which was whether humans could molt like dogs. Someone said, you know, what's going on when a dog is molting? Why does this happen? And, and it's quite an interesting point, because when a dog actually is growing its hair it's not really any different to a human because hairs grow from hair follicles and hair follicles go through cycles. They have an on phase, which is called the anagen phase, like anabolic steroid, it means growth, and that's when the hair follicle is switched on and it's making hair. Then they have something called a catagen phase, which is even in dogs you have a catagen phase, and this is when the hair stops being produced and drops out and then the hair follicle rests for a bit, that's called the theligum phase, and then the cycle resets again. Now in humans, our hair follicles are all out of phase. So in other words, if you look at one follicle, there's not any direct relationship between its activity and the activity of the follicles near it. If you do that in a dog though, dogs, cats and other animals that have to survive the winter, they can synchronise those phases of their hair follicles. So lots of hair follicles can all be switched into their growth phase at the same time as each other, and they can be switched into their anagen-catagen phase at the same time as each other. So as a result, the dog can shed all of its hair when the weather warms up because it can push its hair follicles into the drop-out-your-hair phase all together because the weather's warming up, and this means that it seems to be molting, it's losing those hairs, and you don't get a bald dog because not all of the follicles are in the dropout phase at the same time, but many are, and so that's how dogs, cats and other winter animals or other outside living animals can match the thickness of their fur to the outside temperatures. Hmm, fascinating stuff. Now, Mike in Colchester, we're back to cats and kittens again. Um, many years ago, a wild cat had kittens in his garden. He managed to trap a couple of the kittens and give one to a sister-in-law uh, in a cardboard box. She took it to a house two miles away. Two days later, the very same kitten reappeared back at his house. How did this feral kitten know where to get back to? 
Well, animals are pretty resourceful, and if you think about it, in the wild, an animal like a cat is a big predator, and it's going to have quite a big range, a territory where it gets its food from. Cats are also social creatures, and they like to go and find other animals to interact with, mate with, have kittens with, and so on. So they have to be pretty good at navigating because that's how they find their way around. And in other words, if they're going to find their way around their territory, find food, and find their way home again, and then feed their own offspring and their own kittens, they need to have those kind of skills. So big animals with big ranges have naturally evolved to have very good navigation systems. They rely on sight. Cats have got very good vision, and so they can match up landmarks with where they think they are. They also have a very good sense of smell, and so do dogs. And what they'll be doing is actually uniting all of these things together. So they'll know that certain things that look a certain way match up with certain smells, and they also have an innate sense of direction, possibly because they're able to rely on the Earth's magnetic field. But no one knows for definite. Birds and other animals definitely can, possibly cats and dogs. And in this way, they can combine all of these senses to which they are very, very well attuned. To find their way around, and so they know what home smells like, and they know what home looks like, and so they can find their way backwards and forwards. On the phones, let's go to those. We've got Tony on the line. Hello, Tony. Good evening, sir. <laughs> Hello, it's lovely to hear from you. You're always thinking. What's your question this week? Well, um, I was just listening about the dogs and the molting, mm. and uh, we've got a um, Springer Spaniel that's got a mixture of long hair, which gets very long, and short hair which doesn't get it gets longer but it it sort of controls itself i wonder how it sorts it out chris i'm not a vet so i'm speculating here so if anyone knows better please put me right but i think that the way it works is identical to the human approach which is that you'll have noticed on your own body some hairs grow very very long some hairs remain thankfully very very short some short and curly and intermediate so the answer is that there are different hair follicles that have different programmed growth phase periods and that determines the overall maximum length of a hair and also the characteristic of the keratin the protein that makes hair also determines some of its qualities so whether it's curly and straight and so on is down to partly the protein structure and that's determined by the cells that make the hair so in other words the surface of the body is genetically programmed and patterned and hairs that grow in certain places have certain characteristics because the genes which are being turned on in those hair producing follicles will be a slightly different set of genes than those elsewhere in the body and that means that certain hairs grow for longer certain hairs grow for less time and that determines how long they get in terms of length oh that's very interesting i, I think also uh, with dogs and so on that the dog hairs intermingle with each other more you know we've got long hairs in one spot short hairs in another if you look at a human being yeah. the, the chest hair yeah. is short and wiry but it's certainly yeah. not the same as the underarm pubic hair for example uh-huh. and those two areas are next door to each other so you can actually be fairly precise with the way in which the genetic program works if you look at tortoiseshell cats for example the reason they have different coat colors is because there are certain genes turned on in some hair follicles but not in the adjacent ones and this is making different forms of melanin the colored pigment that gives hair its color get put into the hair so when an animal is 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 made embryologically then you can activate and deactivate different clusters of genes in cells on a potentially random basis and this means that some cells will make certain genetic programs run and this will give certain characteristic hairs the one next door will give a slightly different cocktail of genes and this will give a slightly different hair and that's what breeding has basically brought out in your dog 
Thank you very much, Doctor. Thank you, Tony. (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week, we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Right, let's go to uh, tears now, Dr. Chris. Uh, Billy, enjoying the show, says, Dr. Chris, what makes a person cry? And where does all the water come from to make all those tears? Chris. Well, many men would argue that they cry when they look at their credit card bill, uh, (laughs) especially if they're married. Uh, (laughs) I'm just joking. Um, I was actually asked this on the Simon Mayo show on Radio 2 in the wake of Andy Murray um, having a little flurry of tears uh, when he was beaten fairly convincingly in uh, in the open recently. And the answer is that humans use tears as a very visual display of emotion. And we are visual creatures we devote more than a third of our brains to processing visual information and so therefore things that convey information via the visual route are an effective means of communication between us so in the human brain the emotion center the pain center those different parts of the brain they're wired up to the part of the brain that makes you cry and when we actually cry what you're doing is activating your lacrimal gland which is the little sac it's on the upper outer part of your eye and it effectively acts a bit like a coffee filter it squeezes water out of blood and puts that water and having added some proteins and antibodies and things to it into a little duct which runs down into the eye and the amount of tears that you produce is under nerve control and if you turn up the activity of the nerve cells that supply the lacrimal gland you will make more tears and the tears flow into the eye and they overwhelm the eye's ability to drain tears away naturally you have a little plug hole in the inner lower eyelid um, towards where your nose is if you look you'll see a little black dot that's called a punctum and the tears normally drain in there and then go into your nose but that can only handle so many tears so if you increase the number of tears in the eye they can't drain out down the tear duct so they come out down the face and we're seen to be visibly crying Hmm. All right, let's go to um, another question now. Leanne has sent an email in. She says, can you ask Dr. Chris what an HbA1c blood test will tell you? OK, hello, Leanne. I think you actually mean HbA1c. This is another way of saying glycated haemoglobin. This is used by doctors in people who have diabetes to monitor how well their blood sugars are under control. Normally in the body, glucose is kept within strict limits, about 5 millimolar or so. And that's because if you have too low a glucose, then you can feel dizzy, you can go unconscious, and some people, if they have very, very low glucose for very, very long periods of time, can actually die. So it's dangerous to have too low a glucose, but it's equally bad in some respects to have glucose which is chronically too high, because chronically elevated glucose can start to have other consequences. One of those consequences is that the glucose molecule can react with various chemicals on proteins on the surfaces of cells around the body, and it forms what are called glucose adducts. This is where a sugar molecule gets joined onto the protein, and in this way it can alter the activity of the protein. And as a result, you can get thickened membranes, um, you can get thickened blood vessel walls, it can damage the kidney. But one of the things it can also do is lock on to the haemoglobin, the stuff which makes your red blood cells look red and which carries oxygen around the body. Now, because red blood cells only have a short lifespan, this doesn't actually matter. 
But if you uh, measure a sample of the haemoglobin, you can measure how much sugar there is stuck onto it. This is called HbA1c monitoring, and this is proportional to the average control of glucose over time. So if you just take blood sugar measurements from people, then this only tells you what their sugar's like at that moment in time. The HbA1c gives you an average measure so you can see what a person's sugar control and sugar levels are like on average. And this is a much more informative mechanism and measure because it gives you a much better idea as to what the likely outcomes for that person are. If they've got very good levels of HbA1c, then you know that they're controlling their sugars very well all the time and therefore their health is likely to be as good as it can be. If they have very bad levels of HbA1c, this tells you that perhaps that person needs to watch their diet a little bit more or get some more help in order to control their disease a bit better hmm. now um, this is quite a good one uh, why when you hold your nose does your voice go funny <laughs> that's from Tom <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's it's very true the other thing that can you can do holding your nose of course is um, uh, stop yourself tasting things and this is quite convenient if you hate certain things and you feel compelled to have to eat them especially when you're little and your parents say you must eat that um, and you think I really can't stand the taste of that if you hold your nose you can't taste it and the reason you can't taste it is because most of what we call taste is actually flavours and odorants coming off of the food in your mouth as you warm it up and diffusing up into your nose where it hits the olfactory nerves, which are the smell nerves, and what we are calling taste is actually smell. So what this is showing you, if you hold your nose, is that the nose is in communication with the mouth and there's air communication, and therefore the nose has an acoustic effect too because when you hold your nose what you do is stop air moving down the nose and this means that the normal propagation of the sound waves through your head out of your mouth and nose are affected and therefore the air has to take a slightly different route and this makes your face vibrate it makes your skull vibrate and resonate slightly differently and as a result your voice sounds a bit strange because you're not producing sound waves the way that you normally do out of both orifices they're just coming out of your mouth thank you very much <laughs> Anyway, if you're a lady, then maybe you've been wondering, um, Chris, what causes hot flushes during the menopause? That's from Nikki. She's sent us an email. Yes, well, lots and lots of women, as soon as they get to about age 50 to 55, can identify with these hot flushes. And lots of people talk about them. And then many people who haven't had them are a bit dispassionate and say, oh, you know, how bad can that be? But it is really quite unnerving for people when they experience them. Um, what's going on is that... Normally in the body, when there's a menstrual cycle, you have the hypothalamus, which is at the bottom of the brain, monitoring the body's natural rhythms. And what it does is to watch the levels of various hormones in the bloodstream, and then it sends a message to the pituitary gland, which is the little organ that dangles off the bottom of the hypothalamus, and it tells the pituitary to produce two hormones. One of them is called FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, and another one is called LH, luteinizing hormone. And these are what control the menstrual cycle. So they go round in the bloodstream, down to the ovary, and they tell the ovary, start producing some eggs. And when the eggs get to the right size, the luteinizing hormone tells the egg to come out of the ovary and go into the oviduct. And then, as the egg gets hopefully fertilised if you want to get pregnant and then turns into a developing baby then the levels of oestrogen and progesterone that are produced by that process feed back onto the brain and switch off the supply of FSH and LH or if there is no baby the whole process resets itself and the levels start to go up again to start a new egg forming in a new menstrual cycle. 
Now the problem is, if the ovary runs out of eggs, which is what happens when a person reaches about the age of 50, then the ovary becomes effectively deaf to this signal that the brain is sending. So the brain thinks that the ovary can't hear, so it turns up the level of FSH, and in some cases LH, that it's pumping out, and think, reasoning, it, well, if the ovary is deaf, I need to shout louder. And unfortunately, those hormones, when they start being produced in those sorts of levels, carry with them these side effects, including hot flushes. And we think that's one of the reasons why women experience hot flushes. The good news is that there are ways to deal with it. One of them is to replace some of the hormones, hormone replacement therapy, which can be taken for a number of years and does seem to be effective. The other is that, thankfully, the levels do seem to calm down with time and those nasty symptoms do tend to resolve. So it is a a disrupting time of life and it is unnerving but it does go away and it can be managed hmm. now um, Ian in Spooner Row is, going, is saying going back to the topic of hair how come the hair on his head will continue to grow but on his arms it never seems to get any longer well this comes back to what we were saying with the dog earlier and dogs molting and things the hair follicles which we have on different parts of the body are programmed to, to grow for different lengths of time. So if you compare, say, an eyelash with a head hair, the growth phase of the hair follicles on the top of your head lasts for about three years. So when you get very, very long hair, that's hair that's grown for roughly three years before it turns off and the hair drops out. An eyelash grows for only about 21 days before the growth phase finishes and it goes into the dropout phase. It's a good job it does that, because otherwise we would struggle to see if our eyelashes could grow for three years and become as long as the hair on the head. So if you take that strategy and apply it to the arm, all that's happening on the forearm is that the growth phase of those hairs is shorter, about four weeks or so, and then they drop out, and a new follicle next door is turning back on to make more hair. And that's why you have different lengths of hair on different parts of the body, because you've programmed the growth phases, the anagen phase of the hair follicle, to be longer or shorter, as best befits the anatomical site where the hair's growing. Hmm. There's been a lot of talk this week about how good chocolate is for you, but um, Derek has sent an email in saying about... Um, he heard you mention the side effects of glucose. Um, does glucosamine, as a joint supplement, also have side effects, and can he recommend anything for wear and tear on the hip joints? And is it best to rest completely or to exercise in moderation for the problem? I guess what he's referring to, and hello Derek, is the, the question of osteoarthritis, or more correctly, osteoarthrosis. Um, this is wear and tear, and about 100% of people over the age of 60 unfortunately have some evidence of arthritis. It's very common. What's happening with an arthritic joint is that normally in a synovial joint, a joint which has fluid in it, where two bones meet, is that the bones slip past each other because they have a shiny cartilage layer, which is very low friction, butting against another cartilage layer lubricated by the synovial fluid, the liquid in the joint. Now, as we age, the cartilage gets thinner, it may also get torn or eroded, and eventually bones can end up rubbing on bones, and this becomes incredibly painful. And that's what's happening. When you have a, a swollen or sore joint, then the cartilage isn't protecting the joint surface anymore, and you can actually get bone-bone contact, and this can lead to other problems, such as tiny fractures occurring in the surface of the bone, joint fluid being forced in through the surface of the bone and forming a little what's called geode, or um, you get a little cyst underneath the bone surface. You also get inflammation, and you can make new bone around the edges of a joint, which can restrict the amount of movement it can make. The best way to deal with it is to take exercise to a certain extent but not so much as you actually make the joint get painful to warm up 
progressively to eat a very good diet because we know that a diet rich in fresh fruit and vegetables seems to encourage antioxidants and things in the body which seems to preserve cartilage for as long as possible and also anti-inflammatories are really quite good and if you are in pain and can't move properly it's better to take a paracetamol or something to get you moving because there'll be other benefits to your health through doing some modest exercise over and above sitting down because if you stay immobile for too long you get stiff and when you get stiff there are other health problems and things like DVTs so it's much better to stay active but not overdo it because when you overdo it the joint then gets really sore and then you can't do much for a much longer time so it's better to do as much as you feel comfortable doing but also don't be frightened to use some painkillers and if it does get really bad go and see someone because you can get many joints replaced these days and there are various amazing things that can be done by orthopedic surgeons to make joints much more comfortable again mm. Um, Jan, with our last question this evening. Um, it seems a silly question, she says, but she has porridge every day made the same way. It starts thick and by the end it is runny. Can you tell me why this happens or how it happens? I can only think that when she starts the porridge off, it's cold and then she heats it up and it then gets gloopier. Uh, I think part of the reason for that is that the porridge oats are starch. And when you make the starch molecules get wet, then instead of being tight little well-packed bunches of sugar molecules, then they will take in water and swell. And when they swell, they actually slip past each other with more difficulty. They become more viscous, and therefore the porridge itself becomes thicker. But other than that, I can't think of any other reason why the porridge would, would change in that way. So I, I'm going to go for the fact that the starch becomes stickier and gloopier as it cooks a bit in the hot milk, in the same way that spaghetti um, swells up and becomes fatter and stickier once you cook it. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs> <laughs>